Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. One of the storybooks that my wife has that she read to our children when they were small, and it's probably a story that you remember from your elementary school days, but it was a story known as Stone Soup. Any of you remember that story, Stone Soup? It's an old story originating perhaps centuries ago somewhere in Europe, and there are different versions of the story, but they're all centered really around this same idea. Now, according to the story, uh, three soldiers passed through a village on their way home from fighting in a war. And these soldiers were hungry, and they asked the villagers for something to eat, but the villagers reply, well, the war has left us poor. We're hungry ourselves. There's not a bite of food to be found anywhere in this village. We don't even have enough to feed our own children. How can we be expected to feed three soldiers who are strangers to us? Well, the soldiers say, well, never mind. Just let us borrow a large cauldron and, and give us some water and give us three large stones. And what we'll do is we'll make some stone soup and we'll have just a great feast. And so the baffled villagers give the soldiers what they asked for and the soldiers build a fire there in the middle of the village. They fill the pot with water and they set the pot over the fire and then they toss in those three stones and it all begins to boil. And the soldiers, they sat around the pot, they make merry and they laugh and the puzzled villagers look on and wonder, what in the world are they doing? Ah, says one soldier, stone soup. Have you ever smelled anything so good? The second said, yes, it just smells so delicious. And the third chimed in and said, well, it could use a little bit of salt. Too bad there's no salt to be found in this village. And one of the villagers piped up and said, oh, I have some salt. And he quickly rushed home to fetch his salt. Well, the soldiers continued to sniff the boiling water. If only we had a carrot or two, said one soldier. Stone soup with carrots can't be beat. And potatoes, don't forget potatoes, said the other soldier. Stone soup with potatoes would just be absolutely superb. And cabbage, said the third soldier. Cabbage would make this stone soup absolute perfection and so different villagers they scurry off in different directions each one bringing back something one bringing back a few carrots another bringing back a few potatoes another bringing back a head of cabbage and this goes on and on and on someone had a ham bone someone had an onion someone had some beans of some sort until finally the soup, the soup was done, and there was enough of a hearty, thick soup there in that cauldron to feed the entire village, as well as the soldiers, as well as all of the villagers' children. Now, here's the thing. Earlier, they didn't have a thing to spare in their own estimation. And now, they had a feast. And it happened because everybody made some contribution. Everybody put something in the pot. Now, I find that to be an interesting illustration of the exact 
uh, principle and this emphasis that we've been looking at really over this last month uh, with reference to stewardship. We may not all be able to give the same amount, but folks, we can all give some amount. All of us have something that we can contribute to the work of God and to the kingdom of God. And so that's why this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 really is so very important because these are two chapters in the New Testament that are perhaps among the most important as it relates to this subject of giving. Here we find Paul calling upon the Corinthians in these chapters to give, uh, and once more the issue is the needy saints back in Jerusalem. And we looked at this from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 earlier uh, which, which was written really about a year, a little bit more than a year prior to the book of 2 Corinthians. So this is not just a one-time deal that the Apostle Paul is interested in, but it's a regular and systematic kind of an offering that he wants to be significant as it would go to alleviate need among the poorest saints there in the Jerusalem church. And so the Corinthian church has known about this offering Paul wants them to weekly give to this offering uh, so that there could be this significant amount of relief that he would take back uh, to the church uh, in Jerusalem on his, his uh, return journey there. And so once more here in chapter 8, notice he's instructing them in this matter of a collection involving this matter of a regular weekly giving on their part which is going to serve a very, very real purpose. And to make his point, he's going to use an example of what generosity looks like. And, and the example that he uses will be the churches of Macedonia. And he upholds the churches of Macedonia really as examples, and he wants the Corinthians to sort of follow the same example that they had set with the way that they had so selflessly and sacrificially given themselves uh, to the work of God. So I want to read really just through verse 9 uh, in, in chapter 8, and then we'll stop reading there. But notice the Bible says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means... And as I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. But I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." I want to speak this morning from this subject, the motivation of giving or the motivation of stewardship. Now, we've emphasized a different point of stewardship uh, each Sunday of this month. Going all the way back to the beginning, we looked at the foundation of stewardship. 
And if you remember, I told you that the foundational principle of stewardship is this principle that God owns it all. There's a very real difference between a principle of ownership and the principle of stewardship. All that we have by way of our time, our talents, our treasures, this has been entrusted to us by the Lord himself. And as such, it all belongs to him. And the issue is, what will I do with what he's placed in my hands? How will I use my time for his glory's sake? How will I use my talents for the sake of his kingdom? How will I use my resources, my treasures, for the advancement of his mission, to meet needs where they arise? And so that's the foundation of stewardship. That's really where it all begins. For Matthew 25, we looked at the parable of the talents and the demonstration of stewardship and the way that the master expected his servants that he had entrusted talents to, he expected them to do something with what he placed in their hands. And so this business of stewardship is not something that we can be passive in, but rather active, putting to work, uh, putting to use for Christ's sake all of those things that he's entrusted to our care and to our oversight. And that's what stewardship really is. It's an administration, oversight, Economy comes from this word stewardship, uh, oikonomia in the Greek text of the New Testament. Uh, It speaks of overseeing or managing the resources that ultimately belong to someone else. The evaluation of stewardship is something that we've considered, and the fact that we're going to be held accountable when we stand before the Lord one day, and uh, we'll give an account literally for every word that we speak according to what Jesus says. And if we'll give an account for every word that we speak, what does that mean about the way we use our finances, the way we use our time, uh, the way we use our giftedness and all the resources that the Lord's entrusted us with? From 1 Corinthians 16, last week we looked at the administration of stewardship and sort of some practicalities, how-tos with reference to a weekly offering. Uh, giving being a weekly opportunity for God's people to demonstrate through sacrificial giving uh, their love for God and their commitment to his local church. That's the administration of stewardship. But ultimately, we need to consider the motive behind it all, don't we? What's the motive for giving? Uh, What's the motivation behind our service? What is it that really compels us to serve, compels us to give, compels us to go the extra mile in the Christian life. Now, it's interesting to me that in this passage, not one time does Paul use the word money. Even though he spends two whole chapters dealing with this issue of this offering of relief for the poor saints of Jerusalem and how he wanted the Corinthians to participate, nowhere does he say anything about money. And yet that word grace is something that is mentioned by Paul at least seven times in these two chapters. And so by using this language, the Apostle Paul is really getting down to the underlying motivation behind Christian generosity and service. Folks, what's the motivation? It's the grace of God in my life and your life. It's not the law that motivates us when it comes to giving. It's the grace of God that motivates us when it comes to giving. Not simply because we ought to, but because we get to. And, and, and that's, the, that's the difference. The fact that grace has made such a difference in my life and your life as someone who's come to know Jesus. 
And you know, motive is really a powerful thing uh, which serves as the underlying reason for why we do something. Oftentimes we uh, hear of someone who has an ulterior motive or a hidden reason for why they do a certain thing. Well, our motive for giving and stewardship, it's not ulterior, nor is it concealed. It's not something we're, we're, we're quiet about. No, our ultimate motivation in the Christian life is this motive of God's grace. And God's grace experienced results in selfless sacrificial action on our part. And that's the point that Paul is making to the Corinthian church in this passage. And so he's calling upon these Corinthians to follow up on their commitment uh, to give to this relief offering which is going to go for the poorest saints in the Jerusalem church. That's the issue here. That was the issue in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. It's the same issue he's dealing with here. And yet we find here an overall pattern for all Christian giving. So it doesn't really matter then what the issue was, what the request was, what the purpose was behind this particular offering. We see here in this text really the heart and soul behind all Christian generosity, Christian giving. And it's motivated by the grace of God. So notice a few things from these verses that we've looked at. Number one, notice with me the actions of divine grace. The actions of divine grace. Grace is very active in our lives as Christian men and women, manifesting itself through God-honoring obedience and generosity. And really, that's illustrated in the lives of all of God's people all down through the history of the Bible, redemptive history. And it's certainly true in the case of these Macedonian believers whom Paul is upholding as an example to the Corinthian church. And so he's, he's saying, I want you Corinthians to know something about the way that these Macedonian believers sprung into action when it came to giving. I mean, they went above and beyond when it came to giving, when it came to serving, so much so that it literally just took us by surprise. And he says it was the evidence of the grace of God at work in their life. And then essentially he says, we want the same thing for the Corinthian church. We want you to be able to get in on this. And so notice with me, there are several ways that we see their grace in action. First, notice how the giving of the Macedonian believers was really initiated by God's grace, which was powerfully working in their lives. Again, notice the emphasis there in the passage. Notice how the Apostle Paul, even referring to this giving, he's referring to it as an act of grace at least three times, all the way down through verse 19. So it's not just the offering that he's referring to, but he's getting to the real issue behind the offering itself. This is an act of grace. Grace experienced in their lives now is resulting in grace expressed to others through their lives. And so the issue is meeting the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And, and, and amazingly, it has to do not so much with the Corinthians meeting the needs of the poor saints in their own church. They were already doing that. But Paul's wanting them to get in on this opportunity to be a blessing to the Jerusalem believers. Now, I don't have time to get into the history of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and, and, and Paul's ministry in Corinth. On his second missionary journey, he had planted the church there in Corinth. And, and when he left, it wasn't long after he left that things really kind of fell into disarray. 
the city of Corinth itself, if you know anything about it, uh, was really a, a wealthy, prosperous city. It had been uh, in the time of the Greeks. Uh, somewhere around 146 B.C. or so, uh, Rome destroyed the city, rebuilt the city, and, and made it really a hub of, of, of the Roman province there in the region so that by the time of the Apostle Paul, well into the first century, the city of Corinth was on the up and up. A wealthy city. It wasn't just a wealthy city, but it was a wicked city. There was a lot of sin. There was a lot of debauchery. Uh, there was a lot of immorality that paraded itself in the streets of Corinth. And so it's an amazing thing. Paul goes here. He preaches the gospel. God saves people in Corinth. The, the church in Corinth is planted, and yet the church at Corinth has a lot of problems. In fact, of all of the churches in the New Testament, uh, no church gave Paul more of a fit than the Corinthian church. It was a divided church. Uh, there were factions within the church. The believers at some point became persuaded by perhaps Judaizers who were trying to persuade them that Paul was really a charlatan and he was preaching uh, false doctrine. And so Paul has to defend his apostolic authority to the Corinthian church, and much of that he emphasizes in 2 Corinthians. So somewhere between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there was a real issue that Paul had to deal with in the Corinthian church, so much so that he had to write them what was known, what he referred to as a severe letter, a letter that's been lost to history, a letter that we don't have, but evidently he had some pretty harsh things that he had to say by way of rebuke to the Corinthians. And so he sends Titus to the church, and, and, and by the grace of God, these believers repent, and, and, and word is sent back to Paul as he's in Ephesus that the Corinthians had repented, and so Paul sits down and he writes another letter, and he's writing 2 Corinthians to uh, this group that he's just had such a time with, discipling them up in the faith. Earlier, they had committed to be a part of this offering. Well, now Paul's saying, now, listen, don't go back on your word here, but recognize that we're still receiving this offering to meet the needs for the poorest saints in Jerusalem, and, and, and I want you to be a part of it, and, and it will be evidence that the grace of God is at work in your life. But you really need to know what God has done in the lives of your neighbors to the north up in Macedonia. And so he's using the Macedonian believers, and there were really three primary churches in the area of Macedonia. Uh, you had uh, Philippi, uh, you had uh, Berea, and you had the church at Thessalonica. These three churches in particular represented the Macedonian congregations that Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, what's different about these believers to the north was that in Macedonia, that region typically was more of a war-torn region. There was a lot more poverty. There was a lot more issues going on uh, by way of poverty. And so the believers there in these cities were under a lot of pressure. And remarkably, though, the grace of God was so demonstrated in their life that regardless of their pressure... Regardless of their trials, they were willing to give when given the chance to help meet the needs of the Jerusalem church. Hadn't it been your experience that oftentimes the work of God is not really carried out and done by the world's wealthy? But oftentimes it's the people who don't really have it to give to begin with that end up giving that God uses to accomplish his work 
around the world. It's not the world's elite. It's not so much the wealthy upper class that God uses to fund his ministry. And I'm grateful to God that there are Christian businessmen and businesswomen who are indeed passionate. But for the most part, it's folks who don't have a whole lot that give of what they have. And they do it sacrificially. And it often funds the work of God in so many places around the world. You see this in Scripture. What is it about these Macedonian believers that, that led them to give such generous gifts even though they didn't really have it to give? Paul says it's the evidence of God's grace powerfully working in their life. <laughs> and then when you study it out, you'll notice that secondly, their giving transcended what Paul describes here as severe affliction and difficult circumstances. And so again, there was persecution that many of these believers in Macedonia were experiencing. They were under great duress. They didn't have a whole lot. They had a little. It wasn't convenient for them to give. They were persecuted. They were afflicted. And yet, it was their joy, according to what Paul writes here, for them to be able to participate in this free will offering to alleviate need in Jerusalem. So that tells me that really my circumstance is not much of an excuse when it comes to not participating in the mission of God. God will use you wherever you are, in whatever station of life you are. And we can't say, well, I'm just going to wait until things get a little bit better in my life before I begin using and putting to use what God has entrusted me with for his sake and for his mission's sake. No, God wants to use you right where you are, no matter the circumstances. And so that's a principle then that we see illustrated in these Macedonian churches. Now, notice the third thing. Their giving was out of a deep sense of joy which overflowed from their hearts. Look at verse 2. Paul says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. He sort of juxtaposes their severe test of affliction with their abundance of joy. <laughs> So they have an abundance of joy while experiencing extreme poverty. And, and that's something that really the world can't explain. Though their situation was hard, their cup was overflowing. That's what that word abundance there means. It's this idea that joy within, it transcended their circumstances. So they were rich, but it doesn't say they were rich in money. They weren't rich in houses and lands. They weren't rich or wealthy in possessions. Paul says they were rich in generosity. They were rich in liberality, some translations say. And so what he's describing here is an attitude, an inner heart attitude that's the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And so their riches then had to do with their hearts. And so what if I told you the same thing was true for us? Our real wealth, it's not so much the possessions that we have or don't have. Our real wealth is what we have in Jesus Christ. Endless storehouses of eternal riches in Jesus Christ. The kind that the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1. You want to know how wealthy you are as a believer? You need to just spend some time in Ephesians chapter 1. God, by means of his grace, has made you rich in Christ. 
And that's not prosperity theology that's espoused by, by so many that are false teachers. No, this is, this is, I'm talking about real riches, spiritual riches in Christ that are ours and God has given to us abundantly. And so these Macedonian believers understand this and it produces this joy within that just leads them to give to whatever need because this is the outworking of grace in their life. And then a fourth principle, notice how their giving was proportionate. It was sacrificial in nature, and it was of their own free will. Verse 3 says, they gave according to their means. And Paul says, I can personally testify here, beyond that, of their own accord. So he says, they gave what they were able, but then they went above and beyond. They weren't willing to give out of just a sense of obligation, Paul says, I wasn't trying to twist their arm into giving. This was their joy to give, and they were happy, abundantly happy to do it. There was no reluctance on their part. In fact, if you look over in in, in chapter 9, at verse 7, Paul says it this way. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so that's the way that these Macedonian believers were. They gave with an abundance of joy, literally a surplus of joy overflowing from their lives and from their hearts. They were cheerful givers. I love the Greek word that's used there. It's, it's, it's the same word we get the word hilarious from. I mean, what if spontaneous laughter erupted whenever the ushers began passing the plates on Sunday morning? That's kind of the idea here. Because you understand that this is an opportunity for me to reflect the grace of God that's been so abundantly lavished upon my life. It's just simply one way that I can do that. And then fifth, the fifth principle, notice how their giving was really the practical result of first of all having given themselves to the Lord. And I believe that's the key. That's the key to the sacrificial generosity of the Macedonian churches. Because Paul says in verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor in, in, in participating in this relief effort for the saints. And this not as we expected. He says, verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so that's, that's the secret of their service. They gave themselves first to God, which meant that God had their hearts. And so what was near and dear to God's heart was near and dear to their heart because they had given their hearts to God. They were seeking him first. They were seeking his kingdom first. And so using these Macedonians as true examples of of what grace in action really looks like, he's calling upon the Corinthian church to complete and excel in this same act of grace. Now, folks, listen, when it comes to serving and when it comes to stewardship, the issue here is, does God have my heart? Because when he has my heart, he's going to have everything else that I possess. But if God doesn't have my heart, then he's not going to have access to everything else in my life. We so often want to compartmentalize our lives and say, well, I'll give this to God. And by the way, sometimes someone want to pat themselves on the back and say, you know, I give my 10%, but the 90% is off limits to God. I'm just going to live and use that forever. Let me tell you something. God owns it all. And so grace always compels us to go the extra mile. That's true in our relationships. It's true in our service. That's true in terms of giving. 
We're not under the law. But grace goes far beyond that. Far beyond that. Remember on one occasion where someone came up to Jesus and said, said, Teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They were trying to trip him up in the question. And, and, and Jesus says, well, someone give me a coin. Who's, whose inscription is on the coin? They say, well, Caesar's is. And he says this in Matthew twenty two twenty one: Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar the thing that has its Caesar's image on it. But give to God those things which have his image on it. You know it has God's image all over it? You do. I do. Because we've been made in the image of God. And so here's what Jesus is saying here. Give yourself entirely to God. Devote yourself entirely to the Lord. Don't let there be any off-limits areas in your lives when it comes to God, when it comes to obedience, when it comes to surrender. But yield yourself entirely to God and Paul says that this is really our reasonable service in Romans chapter 12. Why is it reasonable? Well, listen, you think about the way that God has redeemed you and purchased you for himself by his blood. How could I give anything less than all that I have? So these are the actions then of divine grace. Now, number two, what about the access of divine grace? Where does all of this come from? If these Corinthians are to excel in this same measure of grace that the, the Macedonian believers had, where does that grace come from? Well, look at what he says there in verse number 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So there's the access point, divine grace it's what we've come to experience, what we've come to know personally through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you should underline that word know there in verse number nine. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Gnosko, that's the word that Paul uses here. It's a word that doesn't simply imply factual knowledge, but it's a word that, that uh, describes experiential knowledge. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word yada, which means to know in the intimate sense. And so here's what Paul is saying. You know Christ in the intimate sense. You've come to experience the great. Paul says, I remember what he did in your hearts and lives when I was there in Corinth, when I was there with y'all for about a year and a half. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18. I saw what God did in your life by means of changing you, forgiving you, redeeming you, saving you from a corrupt Corinthian culture. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how your hearts melted at the truth of the gospel when you first learned the truth that God so loved you this much that here's what he did by proving his love. He gave his only son who came and suffered and died in your place. That though he was rich, infinitely rich in eternity past, one with the Father, perfect in glory though he was rich yet he became poor how did he become poor he became poor by becoming one of us 
He became poor by being born a human. He became poor by voluntarily laying aside the free exercise of his attributes, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. He became poor by laying that aside and taking upon himself the form of a servant and washing dirty feet and spending time among beggars and outcasts dying on a cross between two thieves which was such a fitting example for the reason he came to begin with to identify with people who could not save themselves who were guilty that's how he became poor so that there's this gracious exchange that's now taken place so that you so that you and me by means of his poverty might now be made rich. How have we been made rich? He was made poor by becoming human and by dying in my place as my sacrifice and atoning sacrifice for sin. Now I've been made rich. How so? I've been forgiven of my sin. My name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to my account. That's how I've been made rich. That's how you've been made rich. And you see, here's the issue. When you understand that this is the access of grace, what that then does is it frees you up to give, to serve, to love, to forgive, to go the extra mile with people. See how that works? Folks, this is the motivation for grace, for giving. It's the grace of God which is the motive now, I've got to finish, but let me ask you this question as I close. Have you had a personal experience with divine grace that has resulted in supernatural generosity? You say, what do you mean? What I'm saying is, have you been so changed by the grace of God, your entire life has been changed, the way you respond to stuff has been changed, the way you look at the world has been changed. The way you view ministry and opportunity has been changed. Because that's what God wants for each one of us. And that's where ministry happens. It's not something that's, that's of compulsion. If we have to do something out of a sense of obligation, then you know what? We're doing it for the wrong motive to begin with. The motive is grace. It's not that I ought to. It's that I get to. Hadn't he been good to you? Oh, I'm telling you, God has been so good to me and my family. He's been, he's been so good. By means of his mercy, he's not given me what I do deserve. And by means of his grace, he's given me what I don't deserve. And that's himself. Let's stand for prayer this morning. We could get into chapter 9 and talk about the abundance of divine grace. I think one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, the more that I've read it, the more that I've studied it, and especially this week as I've just meditated upon it, it comes from verse 9, or, or from chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now think about that. All grace, all sufficiency in all things at all times. 
He's got all grace for all sufficiency in all things at all times. What an awesome promise that is, which means that we're not without. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word and for the abundant grace that's ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, what a privilege it is to serve and what a privilege it is to give and to steward our time, talent, and treasures for the glory of God. Lord, these truths that we've been considering over these last few weeks, Lord, my prayer is that it just wouldn't be a simple one-time deal and then it's out of our minds, but Lord, that this radically changes the way that we live, that this motivation of divine grace be what compels us to mission and to service and to generosity in Jesus' name. Lord, for those that don't know you through a personal saving relationship today, my prayer is that they would repent of their sin and come to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their Savior. They're loved by you, pursued by you, and they can be gloriously saved and redeemed and forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.